0: Welcome to the final episode of the Hidden Voices podcast series from Power. For this episode, I was privileged to be able to speak to Dave Chawner. Dave is a number one best-selling author, award-winning comic and mental health campaigner. Dave's book Weight Expectations is part memoir, part self-help guide about living with an eating disorder. He's a passionate advocate for good mental health and works as an ambassador for mind, calm Beat and the Mental Health Foundation. He's also a stand up comedian, which, as he explains, is problematic in a time when he's unable to perform in front of an audience. We hope you enjoy the podcast. On the podcast today, we've got Dave Chawner. Thank you very much for coming in, Dave. How are you?
1: Good, thank you, my uh, my friends. Yeah, just ticking along and uh, sort of getting on with things, which is uh, which is all
0: right, really. How about you? Good, yeah, yeah. Can't grumble, can't grumble. Um. So as I was saying, we've we've been coming up with this podcast because we've had a bit more time on our hands than than we usually do, and I imagine that might be the same case for you. But my my first question really was, how has being a professional comedian during lockdown affected you? Has it has it had a massive impact on your day-to-day job?
1: Well, yeah. Like, I mean, obviously, I've I've, I've had no sort of income, which is different. And uh, comedy online, it, it absolutely doesn't work. And I mean, and it, it's not only that sort of thing of like you don't hear the audiences laugh because like most of my shows, the audiences don't laugh anyway. But it's more. <laughs> the fact that like it, it's just kind of awkward and a bit weird. It's like having a Skype conversation with your nan because you're kind of like, oh, you in, oh, you frozen. So comedy absolutely doesn't work. And I think one of the weirdest things about the the sort of coronavirus sort of whole epoch is that it's actually let people diversify. And some people have taken to it really well. And I've seen some people that have done some brilliant stuff online and absolutely fair play to them. But in terms of a day-to-day, no, I, I don't think... Comedy online like this is here to stay. I absolutely don't. And it's been odd, but then you always try and put it to good use. I've been very lucky to uh, write a lot. And also I've managed to do a passion project which I've been wanting to do for so long, which is basically coming up with a six week comedy course for people who have experience of mental ill health in order to teach them how to do comedy to get their communication, their confidence, and also their creativity.
0: That's fantastic. That sounds like a really good project and it leads me quite nicely into asking you when you first went down the route of becoming a stand-up comedian, was that before you had your own struggles with mental health?
1: Yeah I mean it's a really good question and the the truth of the answer is it's like intermingled so I sort of uh, realised I was developing, well I didn't realise I was developing anorexia when I was like 17, 18. It took me until I was like 19, 20 which is actually where I found this incredible comedy club that was once every two weeks and I got obsessed with it. And so they kind of overlapped, but it was more watching rather than performing. And it was only when I was uh, late 20s that I thought, you know what, I desperately want to have a go. And I gave it a crack and I tried it when I was at university. Um, and I didn't actually use comedy to talk about anorexia for another three or four years so they did kind of overlap but i think underlying all of that the thing that i've loved about comedy is that it it celebrates the heroes that you don't see in everyday life it celebrates the freaks it celebrates the unusual it celebrates the underdog and i think that's amazing that like you know what actually it's not people trying to be cool it's people celebrating their flaws and i think that's so amazing and cathartic i think actually there's a whole remit of people out there that really deal with those skills to be able to take something and instead of laughing at it laughing around it
0: definitely i think that's a really good good point and obviously with your experience of kind of different having had different therapies and things like that i guess is is there room for a comedy therapy do you know what i mean for that to be developed as a as a kind of therapy
1: Oh, absolutely. So I'm already in touch with King's College London, University of Kent, Nottingham University and Bournemouth in order to sort of roll this out as part of a therapeutic program. So it wouldn't be like, I'm not an expert. I'm just a professional idiot. So it's not going to be uh, in a way of, you know, I'm not going to sit down, people down on the sofa and say, hmm, tell me about your father because it is always the father. But what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to sort of work alongside any medication they are, any support groups, any therapeutic things to actually show people that recovery shouldn't be dull. It shouldn't be taking things away because that was the thing with the anorexia. Everyone said, I'm going to take the anorexia away. No one told me what they were going to give me back. So no wonder I didn't want to engage with therapy because actually you were just taking away something in the same way that you wouldn't say to an alcoholic I'm just going to take all booze away you'd say to them well actually I want to give you things back like you know your your cognition being able to wake up being able to manage money your memory if you spin things positively rather than negatively people are so much more likely to get on board
0: yeah completely agree so I understand you're an ambassador for mind calm beat the mental health foundation
1: quite Bit of a hussy, yeah that's that's absolutely right yeah I kind of I get around so,
0: yeah. <laughs> that's an impressive impressive uh, list of organizations there but so through the work that you've done with them have you have you kind of found that particular people that you've worked with have, have suffered particularly during coronavirus?
1: Oh, I think first point is I think everybody has suffered from coronavirus. And I think in my own personal kind of echo chamber Twitter sphere, I think it's been hard for people with eating disorders because, uh, yes, stuff like anorexia and restrictive eating disorders, it's quite difficult because people have been restricted on the amount of exercise they have. But something that doesn't get a lot of uh, mouth space is the binge eating disorder, which actually makes up 50% of the eating disorders. Being in a house surrounded by food is not a great environment for those kinds of people, but then also the the flagrant uh, sort of almost kind of laddie uh, allusions to alcoholism of like, oh, don't worry, you're allowed to drink as much as you like in lockdown, and that's been okay. People have, you know, you'd never normally sort of do that. And also, I think everybody's been struggling because you hear of all of these big chains going under. You hear about the debt that is going to come. That's before you even consider that massive rising death toll. I think that it's been such a tough time. But what I think is a beautiful thing to come out of it, and what I think is really important to focus on is because everybody has struggled with this. It means that everyone has an insight now. And before, people used to think that mental health was all about sob stories, and it was all about trying to get pity. It's not, because that's mental illness, and that's very worthwhile of people telling their stories. I think that's amazing. I'm not putting that down at all. But what I'm saying is one in four people has mental illness, four in four people have mental health. And that's actually more fun to look at retaining good mental health than holding off mental illness
0: i think that's the thing isn't it That the, the term mental health is something that is almost applied as a label to people who have a mental health condition but of course we all have mental health and it's it's more the status that that's at isn't it well
1: but, this is the thing that like i always said everyone that's got a brain has mental health you would look after your you know you look after your liver you'd look after your kidneys you'd go to the gym you don't have to be unfit in order to go to the gym you don't have to be mentally struggling or unwell in order to start looking after your brain
0: so after you first got into stand-up then how long was it before you felt comfortable doing routines around anorexia <laughs> the
1: truth of the matter is i don't think i've ever felt comfortable I'd um, say I I think it's it's interesting because it was one of the things that I always wanted to 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 do and I remember seeing like all of these incredible acts before I started and they were talking about worrying about being a dad or worrying about being uh, skint so they couldn't afford things or worrying about not being laddier enough and I thought that's an amazing idea that's bewitching and I would love to do that and. Always on a latent level, very much at university, I was kind of going through the sort of anorexic sort of stages, sometimes more, sometimes less, and I, I sort of thought back, and oh, wouldn't comedy be an amazing way to engage with that? But it was only until 2013 when I decided to do my first Edinburgh show with an incredible friend of mine who's a brilliant comic and I'm very uh, lucky to call her a, a mate. Uh, we worked on this show together just purely using comedy to talk about for me, my anorexia, and for her her loss of her boyfriend when she was aged uh, 29. So it was, uh, whenever we told people about the show, they're like, Jesus. Uh, it, it, it was very intense in terms of the topic, but I don't think that comedy is out of bounds for anything. I think it depends on how you talk about it, but more importantly, what is your intent? So comedy can be used to be derisive. It can be used to be de- like belittling and racist and anti-Semitic. but it can also be used to educate, to inform and to entertain people about things that you would never have thought about before. And I think as an ambassador and as a, an eating disorder advocate, it, it's, it's our job, to make things that people would never have thought about entertaining, so that's interesting. And that's something that I think that now I've kind of done a bit about it. I want to kind of constantly keep that updated. So the last show that I did was all about mental health rather than mental illness. Uh, and that's why I don't want to be pejorative about anyone that tells their mental health story. I think that is incredible. I think brilliant. I'm all the parity, but my problem that I have is... More and more people are sharing their mental illness stories, which are brilliant, um, but people are hearing that. So more and more people are naturally going to go, oh, that resonates with me or that resonates with me. And they go out there to seek help, but there are not enough tangible, actual coping mechanisms there. So all you're doing is making people more vulnerable. So I wanted to use comedy in terms of a coping mechanism to equip people with ways to deal with stuff after mental illness.
0: Sure, sure. In your stand-up show, uh, Mental, you talk about a point in your career where you were approached by a member of the audience afterwards and they said something completely insensitive to you. And that obviously had you know a huge impact on you. I I just wondered whether you know you still feel now when when you when you put yourself out there that vulnerability do you know what i mean is that still there or do you find it therapeutic now
1: i think it's a really good question i think at first um first thing i'd say is that like actually it's it's easy to focus on the the bad eggs you know like it's one one rotten apple spoils the barrel, or so, some something like that. that's a very oldie worldy like middle aged phrase, but and it is, and you can easily focus on that that negative and and that that critic which she said was incredibly damaging, and yeah, I was at a very re- vulnerable time, and that did cause me one of the contributing factors to a, a very big relapse and the most major relapse that i would had in my life, and then leading on from that, yes, you do uh, make yourself vulnerable, and I remember just just little things like. Um, there was a guy once in the street who came up to it, at the Fringe and he was like, oh, mate, I saw your show. I absolutely loved it. And I was like, oh, thanks very much. And I just happened to be eating an apple at the moment. And he sort of said, oh, be an apple, a bit of a fraud. Now, I don't want to, I'm not coming down heavy on mm-hmm. him at all because what he was doing in that moment was saying... I liked you, I liked your comedy. I'm going to make a joke. I'm going to be a bit of a mate. And and, and so that's why I don't really like it when people go, oh, what a terrible person for saying that. You never know what's going on in someone's brain bonds, But it did really kind of uh, get to me. So I think I realized, and I think you, everyone has a responsibility to look after their own mental health. So I'm not going to blame anybody else for the things that they did yes they have a control over what they said but i also have a control what i listen to and i wasn't strong enough for that so i think that's one of the things that i want to kind of look at in the comedy course now: making people resilient making people being able to cope with those things but i honestly think the the most vulnerable time is the writing and i actually go a little bit further that i don't think that i'm vulnerable enough in comedy i feel like it's all very much, you know, three statements that are absolutely galling, and then one stupid knob joke. And and it's just to kind of like, the jokes are in there just purely to be like, oh, stay with me. And I kind of want to be a little bit more authentic and a little bit more open and honest. But I think you always, you know, when you put yourself out there, the common narrative is that you get shut down. The common narrative is that people don't understand and you're isolated and alone. But that is not true in my experience in my experience the more vulnerable that you tend to make yourself the more honest people are the more that they want to reveal you and yes there will be one or two people that perhaps will say things that you don't want or need to hear but that is hugely counteracted by the thousands of people that you know get in touch and like when they read the book like my inbox it was so lovely of people sort of saying I'm, I'm reading this from New Zealand from Switzerland from America and I'm really you know uh, I, I, I'm really chuffed that you said that and like I'm looking after my brother and those are the things that really matter and those are the things that I kind of try and want to focus on more
0: I think that's it it's, it's a really difficult one isn't it because you I mean naturally if I hear criticism of myself I'd like to think that if I respect that person and I receive the criticism, I take it on board. But if it's somebody who I don't respect, you know, then I then I would just, you know, completely be oblivious to it and, and move on with my life. But I guess it's not as easy as that, is it? When you're when you're putting yourself in that vulnerable position, either on stage or over Twitter and things like that and somebody's somebody's calling you out for doing that, that must be really difficult mentally to to, to kind of um process that
1: yeah it is and i think twitter is a very different thing because for some reason i'm i'm like i do find it quite insidious on twitter but i think um and i think that's because people can hide behind a keyboard people say things online that they would never say to your face you'd never go up to people and say those kind of things but if you're standing opposite someone and you can see the whites in their eyes i think nine times out of ten they will give you the sort of benefit that they're at, And they're kind of like, because they feel that connection. They feel that you are real. And I think that's why perhaps I prefer the sort of live sphere more. But I, I always think as well, there's this struggle between, I never want to be immune to criticism. Sorry, my girlfriend's just destroying our bedroom. Uh, I never want to be completely immune to criticism because actually like that helps you learn and grow and understand but also especially with mental health i'm trying to move a little bit away now from preaching to the converted because what i would love to do is i would love to reach out and kind of um, make the the Piers Morgans, the Katie Hopkins, all of those kind of people understand mental health a little bit more. Because I think a lot of the questions that they ask, they're acerbic, they're angry, and sometimes they can be helpful, but I think they're relevant questions. And people say things like, you know, would you say your anorexia was incredibly selfish? And I'll say, you know what, like I can see why it might seem like that. And I can see that there are elements of it that for me, actually, I, I should have thought of people more. And I put people through really really difficult circumstances but it wasn't selfish because i, I wish that i could have stopped and i really wish that i could have got help and actually the fact that you're saying that is, it's like it's half of the 10 of the times of the things that i was saying that were really terrible so actually i sometimes think that criticism or those uncomfortable questions are, are good in order to help make you more robust
0: yeah, I think that's one of the difficult things when, we, when we've got kind of such a polarised society at the moment. And I know, I know I'm as guilty of it as, as anybody. If there's somebody who has, you know, a political or a kind of social opinion that I disagree with, my instinct is to kind of... Not necessarily dehumanise them, but certainly, you know, kind of push them away and say, you know, this person doesn't speak for me or, you know, I don't want to engage with this person. But like you say, if we're going to change a society's attitude as a whole, I guess they're the people that we need to try and put our arms around, really, and say, you know, this is what we, you know, this is what you think and this is why you're wrong. But do it in a in a loving, compassionate way, which I know is much easier in theory than it is in practice.
1: Well, that's why why I kind of wish that I was a better comic or, you know, because I actually think that um, if you had a reasoned and logical discussion with, and this is possibly a very unfair comparison, but let's say Piers Morgan about, you know, mental health. If you had a sort of reasoned debate with him, he might get angry, whatever. However, when I met him, he instantly like it sort of seemed to warm to me because like we had a bit of a laugh and we had a joke Uh, and the fact that he, he wanted that laugh and that joke and i think comedy sort of transcends all of those boundaries of like and i don't mean to be highfalutin about it but i mean look bottom line i've never met anyone that don't like to laugh and actually you can use that as a sort of thing to draw people in who might not be similar to you they might not share the same political opinion And sort of going, you know what, like your point about X, I kind of take that. But have you thought about Y? And I think that is where real change comes from. Because I realize that sometimes it can just be people that have experience of mental health saying, oh, this is what mental health is like. And everyone else sitting there going, well, yeah, I know that's what mental health and mental health complaints are like. What you actually need to reach are the the sort of the, the people that, you know, the silent majority, perhaps, that have never even thought about their mental health.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. So I've, I've heard you talking in your shows about kind of various therapies that you've been a part of in the past. I just wondered which ones really helped you.
1: It's a great question. So again, I would say different people, oh, it's ironic, siren there. Uh, different <laughs> people are attuned to different therapies. So what works for me might not work for someone else. So I would never um, advise or, you know, ascribe different types of therapy to different types of people. Things like CBT didn't work for me because I never liked homework and I never liked question sheets and all of those sort of things. As you can tell from these terribly long, rambling answers, I forget the question and carry on talking anyway. I personally really like talking therapy so things like dbt really really work for me and i think part of that and i've talked to a lot of friends about this is because i don't have a conscious narrative there's this thing called metacognition which is basically thinking about the way that you think so i don't know if you've ever seen uh, scrubs or like the narrators in the fairy tales of like one day i woke up i, d- I don't have that when i think i think emotionally So I think through feelings. I don't actually think, oh, I've got to do that. I really have to work to build up that voice. So that's why I find talking externally is really good because I don't have that internally. And I think we're going to maybe in sort of 10, 15, 20 years' time realise that different people's brains work in different ways. And instead of trying to fit everyone into the same mould sort of say well dialectical behavioural therapy might work for you or sports therapy or art therapy might work for you so but it was always really talking therapies that were really
0: useful for me. That's great that's great so I was interested in something you said about British society not having moved on in their sort of attitude towards mental health since Victorian days um, which I know was you know an extreme example but I thought it was really interesting you compared reality tv to Victorian freak shows is that is that fair that was a
1: really old show <laughs> that's yes, okay I don't know, but you're right
0: but it's an interesting comparison and I just wondered if you if you could talk a bit about sort of what impacts things like reality tv you know can have on young people's mental health or anybody's well, mental health of any age for that matter you know
1: Here's a really interesting thing about reality TV. I read somewhere, I think it was Professor Robert Winston, said that actually uh, he interviewed a TV researcher who went through, I can't remember what diagnostic profile it was, but for uh, a mental illness, for something like narcissistic personality disorder or different personality disorders and they found it they printed it off and when they were screening for reality shows they screened based on those categories so they were literally going for the people who were the most fame hungry but equally by that token the most vulnerable and that researcher said as soon as soon as i had like a week off i was like what am i doing with my life i'm two steps away from becoming hitler I'm a terrible person, and then quit, and yeah, I'm sure it's happily ever after. I think that we live in a really weird time. I think that fame has become a currency, and I think that people want to be recognized. I think the problem is, on social media, everybody has a voice now, which is brilliant. I think it's incredible and so good to the large part, but when everyone has a voice no one is left to listen and when no one is left to listen you have to say the really extreme things in order to get heard nuance is not you know something well the last time you went on twitter and facebook and someone said well on the one hand uh no they wouldn't They'd <laughs> say like they say, you know things like hateful things like no black lives matter or all black lives it, it, it's it's kind of like you know so polarized and that's because to get any cut to get listened to at all you need to be the extreme version and i think that's why everything is becoming so polarized clickbaity truncated because people are trying to get attention and especially a younger generation have been brought up with that but now the rules of the game are slowly being changed so I really worry about people's uh, mental health because a lot of the time, you know, self-worth used to come from your jobs. Well, there's actually rising unemployment coming straight down the track. And not only that, actually, your job isn't like it used to. It didn't used to be like, you know, you're a cobbler. You've made a nice shoe, lovely stuff, go home. Now it's very... Uh, sort of Marxist and esoteric that like you might spend an entire day typing away at a spreadsheet. You can't go home and put that spreadsheet on the wall because you look like a m- mental case. So I, I think that like self worth is coming through tweets and likes and subscribers, and I think that's a really dodgy territory to be in. And I don't think that that is new. I think there's always been mental health struggles but i do worry about some of the challenges that will face a younger generation that have never really faced anyone before sure and
0: does that I,
1: really answer the question yeah
0: no i think it does and, it, and it's an interesting point I, I think possibly society to an extent um almost plays upon our desires though, and our and our wants and, and things do you know what i mean that's that's kind of a i guess like a hallmark of a society that wants to sell you things and so that it's it's yes. almost in in people you know, it's in kind of um large companies' interests for you to be insecure, you know, and to, to want this and that and the other.
1: Couldn't agree more. And that's also a really good point as well about mental health. Taking my own kind of experience of like anorexia, I remember in uh, 2010 when I was still in the the sort of you know still sort of starting to get my head around, maybe I'm anorexic and stuff. I remember if you read any glossy magazine or any newspaper article about anorexia, it'd be like, "This is June, she weighs less than a bag of crisps," and it would always be these people that were like so extremely unwell. And someone put it to me that you know you can just as easily drown in a uh, puddle as you can in a lake eating disorders aren't about numbers on a scale they're about the severity to that person and that's just one mental illness the amount of people who uh, you know it used to be called manic depression when i was a kid now it's bipolar and the stories that used to get told are people that would rack up spending bills of like 10 20 30 thousand pounds and then not get out of bed for a week and those are terrible stories but a lot of people with bipolar, they're not that extreme. And it's always like turning this into some sort of pastiche freak show of like, oh, my goodness, this is the craziest thing that someone's done. But actually, mental illness is, is very banal and very mundane. And actually, it's, it's not sexy. And it's, it's definitely not interesting. It's dull and crap. There's also so so many stats that kind of get me. Like for example, I found out um, last week that uh, suicide is the biggest killer of mothers with an under one year old. Um, and and I was like, well, I didn't realise that. And and also like post and antenatal depression um, relates to men as well. Men can get postnatal depression, and I'd never really thought about that before. And I was like, wow, that is actually a really 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 good. And I think we're going to realise that actually all of these things that perhaps got genderised or got linked to different things, they're actually a lot more diverse than we, we ever thought.
0: Sure, sure. So this is a big question, but what what do you think needs to change in this country so that people with mental health conditions get the help that they need? And, and I guess I mean that both within the kind of mental health system we have in this country and then society in general as well.
1: Okay, so it's a huge question, and I'm not under any impressions that I'm going to solve the world's problems, you know, uh, in, in like 30 second soundbite. But what I do think is really impress- important is, firstly, that we start talking about mental health rather than mental illness. I think as soon as people realize, oh, this relates to me, they will sit up and listen rather than, oh, that person had X disease. Isn't that terrible for them? I'll never get it. And actually, I'll go a little bit further on that and say, talk about good mental health because you ain't, only you ain't need to go if you google physical health there will be pictures of apples pictures of people running in the park pictures of you know people standing there smiling if you google mental health it'll be the head clutcher picture of someone in a deserted garage in the arse end of barnsley just like kind of crying and you're like what why why does it always have to be a bad Thing. So I think it's really important that we start seeing the good because that'll make people want to engage. It actually should be stuff that you can like chat about in, in the pub while you're playing the PlayStation, while you're sort of doing voice notes when you're on a Friday night out. It doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. You can actually chat about, like, I, I think for me at least. Uh, I love nothing more. And good mental health for me is like sitting around a table with a group of mates going, like starting a sentence with, oh my God, can you remember that time when? I, I love those moments. Of, you know, so, Do you remember that time where we tried to speak to a dog? And, and just ridiculous scenarios. That for me is good mental health. And you know what? It's an absolute no-brainer. If you talk to people and said, that is what good mental health is, people will be like, absolutely, I'm fully subscribed, I'm on board, let's talk about it. Um, And I think the question that I really want to avoid is uh, sort of like, I suppose, politically and socially, what do we need to change? I think that we kind of really need to start seeing that mental health is as important as uh, physical health. So unfortunately, that means funding. And, you know, I'm not a politician. Uh, Thank God. I, I would be terrible. It would it would just be free penny sweets for all. And don't ask me any questions. But I do think that there is a huge lack of resources. And I think post-COVID, that's only going to get worse. So I actually would kind of answer that question by saying that we need to inspire that change uh, socially. So actually, you know, making it so fun and making it so engaging that the government can't avoid this for so long, because when people are really unwell and i speak from a a place of a real privilege that i you know i can have my mental illness and i can still work but there are for some people that is not a reality and so we need to kind of look after the vulnerable to help the 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 sort of the well people but also make everyone realize that this isn't something that you only really need to engage in on programs like you know sort of jeremy kyle or bbc's panorama this is this is a very real thing that everyone has
0: good answer good answer to a very what could have been a very expansive question <laughs> <laughs> i thought you were going to bring spreadsheets you know what i mean and, and kind of like no, I mean, graphs yeah. and <laughs> you'd be
1: right for that like i, I don't know why i brought spreadsheets earlier on but i i do love an excel
0: that's great so i was just wondering again a very difficult question because we don't know what's round the corner in the next few months but what's what's next for you Dave
1: very good question. So I think there's so much exciting stuff coming up. So I'm doing this comedy course for people in recovery, and I'm already working that up. We're piloting that at the moment, and I'm so excited to see where that goes. So that is something that is, is really exciting. I'm really, really uh, pumped about. Uh, the second one is I'm working on a new show, which is uh, it's called Underdog, and it's about celebrating the underdog, and actually realizing that I feel like we've got two stratas of society now, the people that have absolutely made a success, the Kim Kardashians, you know, the sort of Kanye West, the Jeff Bezos' and then you've got the sort of people that are on the bottom that, you know, sort of are down and out, they were thinking of taking their life and actually most people are generally pootling along. In between, so I, I want to do a show to sort of say it's okay to be okay. You don't have to be the first person on the moon. You don't have to be the first gay person to be prime minister. You can just be, and that is okay. Um, so I'm really excited about that, and I'm also doing a very silly show all about the history of philosophy uh, as well, which is one of my I love philosophy. So that's been really really good fun. Uh, so yeah, I've got a lot to keep me keep me going really
0: great stuff great stuff so you've exhausted my list of questions Dave so I'm, I'm really grateful um, it's been it's been brilliant but I did just want to kind of um, make you aware of this because I don't know if you know but so I bought your book today off a well-known site which you can get everything from there was another book which had not not your exact same title but it had weight expectations in it did you did you know that no way. okay. I didn't- so it says, I've, I've, I wrote down the description because I thought you'd be amused. So it says, it describes itself as a bad boy workplace romantic comedy. <laughs> and the so the, the little blurb says, Rianne Rian Thompson thought she joined the gym to get healthy. Little did she know she was about to add 190 pounds of swoon-worthy abdominal muscles and arrogance to her life. So, so there you go. So that's, that's your competition.
1: So that's my book. What was the other book? Brilliant. Wow. I did not know that. How yeah. incredible.
0: So yeah, now I thought, I thought you'd like to know, I thought you'd like to know, but it's on there. It's on there.
1: Well, I know what I'm doing. As soon as this is over, I'm going to go check that out. That is brilliant.
0: Excellent. I'm not sure that it will provide the the practical advice that your book provides, but
1: you know, <laughs> who knows? You know what I mean? <laughs> it could even be better. So let's see.
0: Thanks again to Dave for coming on the podcast. If you’d like to know more about power, you can visit our website at www.pohwER.net. That’s power spelt r.net. Thank you for listening.